Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the second season of CKX Questions. My name is Yasmin Hassan, and I'm the hosting and facilitation lead here at CKX. The central question for this season is how do we mobilize to build just futures together? In this episode, it was an absolute privilege to sit down with Robin Beckett. Robin is a public health worker and organizer with a decent work and health network, 15 in Fairness and Climate Justice Toronto. Throughout our conversation, we reflected on the importance of work and health safety, paid sick days, migrant justice, movement sustainability, and how youth can make change happen. For this episode, it's an absolute privilege to be joined by Robin Beckett. Robin is a public health worker and organizer with the Decent Work and Health Network, 15 in Fairness, and Climate Justice Toronto. Thank you for joining us on CKX Questions, Robin. Maybe to start, uh, how would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Great. Thank you so much, Yasmin. It's an absolute pleasure to be here as well. Um, So my name's Robin. I use she, her pronouns. And I work in public health and also organize with the Decent Work and Health Network. And the Decent Work and Health Network is a group of healthcare workers, public health workers, and community members who know that working conditions and employment laws impact health. Um, We originated through and remain connected with the Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign, which is the movement fighting for a $15 minimum wage and fairness at work across Ontario. Thank you, Robin. That's That sounds incredible. I, I'm excited to kind of dive in to see more about that work that you're doing, because I know for me, it's something that I hadn't been sitting with for a long time about like work and health as as a movement space, but I've had the privilege of organizing alongside you in the climate justice context and and something we we name in climate justice Toronto is how we must show up for other struggles as if they are our own because they are. And I think this framework really helped me to see all the intersections of movements. So with that being said, could you expand more on, on what decent work and health means for you and, and why people should care? Yeah, for sure. So the connection between work and health, I think, is not always super clear. Um, something that really struck a chord with me, and I encourage others to reflect on this also, is really considering your own employment, either current or past, and thinking about the ways it's impacted on your health. And of course, this can be both positive and negative, um, because we do really tend to see our time at work as one thing, and then our health as something entirely different or separate. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the main reasons why we should care is that our working conditions can have massive negative impacts on our health. In fact, a few years ago, the Canadian Medical Association held consultations across Canada to determine what made Canadians sick. And they found that at the very top of this list is income and close behind that is employment and working conditions. Mm -hmm. So how does this happen? So we know that work determines our income, of course, as well as benefits and our ability to afford medications, as well as physical exposures to things like chemicals and infectious diseases, as well as Mm -hmm. injuries. It can also have a huge mental health impact, both from the work environment itself and also due, due to any job uncertainty. And precarious type employment specifically, so that is employment um, generally characterized by having low wages, uncertain work hours, temporary or contract work, health and safety hazards, limited or no social benefits, and non-unionized work. So that work specifically has serious implications for both individual and public health. And, you know, we see this time and time again uh, coming through in research. So just as some um, examples, a study in Finland showed that mortality was higher among temporary workers compared to permanent workers We also see precarious workers experiencing higher levels 
of a range of health outcomes such as anxiety, insomnia, depression, family tension, chronic pain, high blood pressure, arthritis, addictions, and ulcers. Um, And also perhaps more explicit is the connection between workplace protection of paid sick days specifically and health. So without paid sick days, we are forcing workers to make the choice between recovering from an illness and having an income. Mm -hmm. So for low wage workers already experiencing forced austerity, losing a day's pay is just simply not feasible. And of course, in this situation, many, and I know myself included, would choose to go to work even when sick. And going into work while sick means that workers aren't getting the rest they deserve and then it takes them longer to recover and they could potentially also be exacerbating any chronic illnesses or injuries and they are also potentially spreading illnesses to their co-workers, customers or patients. Mm -hmm. And in fact, lack of paid sick days is not rare. Um, Actually, over half of all workers in this country do not have paid sick days and also um, a lower, uh, the lower the worker's wage, the less likely they are to have access to paid sick days. So we'll eat, we'll, you know, often in this um, organizing work, we'll hear the argument from government and um, corporations that, well, these types of jobs are held by teenagers with support at home. But, you know, this simply is not true. In fact, 30% of all Ontario are low-wage workers, so that's fifteen under $15 an hour, um, and also 66% of minimum wage earners are older than 20 years old. So clearly, a significant portion of workers in Canada are working precarious jobs, and it is having a massive toll on health. Mm, wow, yeah, I think that's pretty mind-blowing I didn't know half of that information so first of all thanks for for sharing that something that I've been sitting with also is just that idea of precarious work is one that I think both you and I being on the younger side have grown up knowing and seeing as the norm right but um just even through like what you just shared and the little bit that I know about about this movement and and the way in which um like why we're fighting for a, a decent like work and health situation is like because that we know that there is another way to have work show up in the world and and I think yeah in this current moment and with this global pandemic and like the uprisings going on um, people are being put into an even more precarious situation it seems and um, I would I would wonder if you could expand a little bit more on like the role of, of neoliberalism and, and how that job insecurity is showing up right now and, and like how do we actively push back against these forces? I think pushing beyond these like capitalist and neoliberal um, uh, structures in the way in which we, we have work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, we know that neoliberalism forces scarcity, um, of course, in the name of maximizing profit. Mm. Um, so what this means for working conditions is that we see corporations, um, bosses and employers providing the absolute bare minimum for their workers and the government also pandering to the demands of corporations through taking away employment rights again, in the name of maximizing profit. Um, So, for example, back in 2017, uh, Bill 148 was passed, which made several of our decent work demands into law. Um, So this was a huge win in Ontario. Um, So we got an increase to the minimum wage, two paid sick days, 10 personal emergency leave days and the removal of employer required sick notes for short term illnesses. So, you know, of course, these aren't um, massive changes to the neoliberal system. Um, Some would say uh, relatively moderate changes, but at least they were something. Um, But then 
Doug Ford came into power in 2018 and took away pretty much all of these. Um, so he froze the minimum wage and prevented it from its scheduled additional increase, took away paid sick days, reduced the number of personal emergency leave days, and took away their flexibility. Again, all in the name of the economy. <laughs> um, so... Uh, so we are seeing also neoliberalism furthering its goal um, during this pandemic, as you as you had mentioned before. So many workers on the front lines of this pandemic are making minimum wage and do not have paid sick days, including the cleaners, grocery store workers, and many mm-hmm. care workers. Where um, you know we're calling these workers superheroes, but we and these companies and the government need to be putting our money where our mouth is. Many of these workers are still being denied a decent wage and paid sick days. Um, we saw some support come through uh, in the form of pandemic pay. However, it's been super short-lived, and many grocery store corporations are ending it. Um, and we also know that job precarity and poor health outcomes are not experienced equally across populations. We see that because of racism and sexism, racialized people and women, particularly racialized women and migrant women, are overrepresented in precarious jobs and are facing the brunt of neoliberalism. So, for example, we are all aware of the dire circumstances in long-term care homes in the midst of COVID-19 and the conditions workers are faced with, including lack of PPE, low wages, no paid sick days, put these workers at um, an increased risk of COVID-19. And workers in long-term care homes are largely racialized migrant women in Montreal, where we've seen some of the worst impacts of COVID-19 in long-term care homes. The vast majority of AIDS working in these homes are racialized women and mostly Black women. And connecting to migrant workers' rights, um, so farm workers in Canada are largely racialized migrants and care workers in Canada are largely racialized migrant women. These are the people who are working in the most precarious conditions and facing the greatest health risks from employment, especially during a pandemic. So we are seeing the horrific result of these denied rights in the name of profit and to further this neoliberalism uh, agenda. So multi-million dollar produce farms like Scotland Growers um, in Ontario um, are locations of Ontario's largest COVID-19 outbreaks. And across Canada, three migrant workers have tragically lost their life from COVID-19. And we're seeing um, migrant workers groups and migrant workers um, leading the response to this. So for example, the Justice for Migrant Workers group issued an emergency statement calling for an immediate shutdown of the entire agricultural industry until every workplace is fully sanitized and Mm -hmm. safety measures are put in place to ensure that workers are not working um, under risk to their life and health. And as said by the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, these lives have not been lost because of some some unavoidable tragedy but as a direct result of decisions made by the federal and provincial governments. And, you know, I think that this is a really important statement um, because when we make comments about, you know, who is disproportionately experiencing precarious employment Mm -hmm. and who is facing worse health outcomes, it is absolutely critical that we emphasize that these are not due to personal reasons or choices or unavoidable tra- tragedies. This is the result of historic, individual, systemic, and strategic racism born from white supremacy that has led certain policy choices that result in racialized communities being robbed of basic rights and suffering higher levels of poverty and pollution and stress and incarceration and precarious work and limited access to healthcare and poor healthcare. And, you know, being in um, the public health field myself, this, mm. I have recognized that um, 
something that the health field and public health often neglect or get entirely wrong when talking about the social determinants of health or the root causes of health inequity um, is that so public health will read off the social determinants of health often sounding like a laundry list and say, you know, the causes to these health inequities are things like race and gender and income, among others. And this, but saying it like this is not only misleading, but entirely, but it's cor- incorrect and dangerous mm-hmm. because as we know, the actual roots of health inequities are the systems of neoliberalism and colonialism and white supremacy that lead to certain communities experiencing higher levels of precarious employment and worse health. And, you know, I, having read the public health literature, um, I find that health and public health writing and research will sometimes come close to making these connections, but they seemingly will rarely actually make the connection because, you know, it's often becomes too political, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but really this is like absolutely ridiculous because when, you know, you really think about it and get to the root causes, actual legitimate widespread sustainable solutions to public health issues in this country are inherently anti-capitalist, anti-racist and anti-colonialist. And yeah, I feel like this has been a little bit of a tangent, but (laughs) no, This is so important. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I just like me ranting off about public health. Like I <laughs> you know, public health kind of like introduced me, I think, to, mm. to the decent work um organizing movement, but which I'm grateful for, but also simultaneous to this, I think um it's been made so clear to me how much the public health field um has upheld neoliberalism mm. and white supremacy and colonialism and you know this is like this is why it's so important that like now that health and public health workers are acknowledging at our own complicity in this and um so and groups like the decent work and health network and health providers against poverty are um signing on and in support of demands from Black Lives Matter and taking mm-hmm. leadership now from Black health leaders who, um, through the Alliance for Healthier Communities, are calling for faster action to meaningfully confront white supremacy. Because as we know, this system of white supremacy, along with neoliberalism and colonialism, are at the root of precarious employment and health inequity. Yeah, no, wow. That was really beautifully said and not a rant at all. I think like that was a it was something that needed to be named and I think you named it really eloquently and like really profoundly and something that stuck out to me um, just like as you were speaking about that is just the the notion I guess of, of social determinants of health. Um, and and I'm really glad that you talked about the ways in which that can often be like glossed over um, and like disregarded by by the I guess the public health industry um or world and like I only really started to think about that through my own like research and gentrification which is a totally different thing but also related um in the sense of like how social determinants of health show up and how it's different from uh what I first learned uh being called like structural determinants of health which is something that uh, Dr. Ingrid Waldron um, wrote about in her book, There's Something in the Water. And she kind of talks about how the concept of social determinants of health, uh, she quotes, excludes marginalized or other types of determinants by typically considered to fall under the category of social. Um, for example, things like spiritual spirituality or like relationship to the land or geography or history culture, language, and knowledge of systems, and instead we should think about, like, these structural determinants of health, which she, like, says is, quote, such as low uh, education, attainment, unemployment, income, insecurity, and poverty, which comprise community members' capacity to fight back against the placement of harmful industries in their neighborhoods and the ways they intersect in their community, making them more vulnerable, and I think that's also something that that really shows up 
in in work right and and I think you really alluded to and the importance of naming that like social determinants of health don't do enough they're not a holistic way to demonstrate like the inequality that a lot of marginalized and racialized folks especially like black and indigenous people like they they face um in the workforce so I totally yeah that totally resonated with me and and I also really appreciate how you started talking about the ways in which migrant justice is so intertwined if we're talking about working and and health justice and I was I was curious you kind of touched on this already really beautifully but if you could maybe expand a little bit more about like when we're talking about decent work and and fair pay how do we how do we stand in solidarity with migrant migrant workers and what does that look like yeah for sure um and uh, kind of we what we have been alluding to already, um, I think that it's important that we approach this work um, with a clear understanding, of, first of all, borders and immigration laws um, and what they are and who they serve and that mm-hmm. these constructs of the, these borders and laws have been developed through and to reinforce neoliberalism again and colonialism and white supremacy and for economic and political gain of countries, including of Canada. Um, and we must have the understanding that Canada actually profits off of the displacement of people through extraction of resources and through arms trade, um, especially people in the global south. And further, that also due to lax employment laws for migrant workers in Canada, corporations actually profit off of atrocious labor conditions forced upon migrant workers. So with this initial understanding and background, I think it um, becomes to um, it becomes clear that rights for migrant workers um, are central to the decent work struggle and also the connection to health too. And I think that this further becomes clear when, you know, we look at the data and at labor laws. Um, So migrant workers do face disproportionate levels of precarious working conditions because most labor laws um, actually exclude migrant workers. So where workers with citizenship or status have laws that act as this bottom floor and provide rights around, so minimum wage, overtime pay, hours, breaks, days off. Um, For example, migrant workers largely do not have such rights and protections. And this is actually the situation faced by the majority of migrants coming into Canada. So over two thirds of migrants who arrive in this country each year are given the temporary work study or refugee permits instead of full immigration status, leaving them out of critical rights and protections. And, you know, further, employment insurance also um, excludes most low-wage migrant workers, either explicitly or because of administrative criteria. Um, And without this uh, immigration status, workers who um, have been and continue to bravely speak out about these atrocious conditions put their their safety at risk and are also facing the threat of deportation. So as the Migrant migrant Rights Network points out, um, the immigration system is built for the bosses and not workers. And it was built Mm -hmm. on racist exclusion and keeping migrants temporary for economic gain. So what solidarity looks like now with migrant workers is really aligning ourselves with the international students and the refugees and foreign workers and undocumented people and migrant sex workers who have been and continue to be rising up and supporting and amplifying their voices and calls to action. So specifically right now, this looks like directing our attention to the work of groups like the Migrant Rights Network, I mentioned earlier, who are calling for full immigration status for all. Um, So this includes undocumented migrants, temporary foreign workers, care workers, international students and refugees, um, both young and old, um, working or not working, um, criminalized or not. And this also includes all people who come to Canada as well in the future. 
So all should be able to come to Canada as permanent residents if they so choose and also be able to bring their families with them. And, you know, as the Migrant Rights Network points out, status for all is not only possible, but also entirely necessary, including in a just recovery from COVID-19. Mm. Um, because as migrant workers and migrant workers' rights groups have been telling us, as COVID and as COVID has made um, entirely obvious, migrant and undocumented workers are essential for functioning of this society and that in denying status, Canada is actively excluding migrants from basic human rights like healthcare, decent work and emergency support even during COVID-19. And you know, they're telling these individuals that your labor is essential, but you are expendable. Mm -hmm. And also status for all ensures rights for everyone because our Canadian immigration policy um, divides migrants into two categories. So those who arrive with permanent immigration status and those who don't. And we know those who don't arrive with status are largely racialized and low-waged. And as the Migrant Rights Network has made clear, ensuring full immigration status for all is a comprehensive and effective measure in ending differential treatment to migrants and ensuring that everyone gets these basic social protections, adequate income and d decent working conditions in addition to access to healthcare and social protections. Um, and when it comes really down to it, um, sorry, what it really comes down to is that these people who are facing the most precarious working conditions in Canada from the actions of the Canadian government and corporations are also those whose labor is up is holding together and sustaining our society. They are also those who have been displaced and separated from their families and their homes by the actions of the Canadian government and Canadian corporations. And they are those also made to be the most vulnerable to COVID-19 and simultaneously denied government support. And, you know, migrants have been raising this for decades and worker and the workers movement must ensure that migrant rights are core to the struggle. Um, the Migrant Rights Network actually has a really clear plan on how status for all can be enacted and everyone is encouraged to visit their website at mm. migrantrights.ca for specific actions you can take to support, like signing their petition and calling Trudeau to tell him you support immigration status for all. All of those um, links will also be in our show notes for if listeners want to, yeah, hopefully get on board and like start in the in this justice work. Um, yeah, I think that was again just like really important to to name and, and honor those who who are who have been tirelessly and thanklessly doing work um, to build this so-called country and like keep our economy afloat, who who consistently are erased um, and and disregarded and and seen as disposable and and I think you're right in in saying that like by fighting for migrant justice we're also fighting for for the greater um like justice of workers and and health right and so thank you for naming that and i guess um with that it feels so heavy when we when we name all of those things and it, it feels like i guess i know something that i experience sometimes in movement work is just feeling like this work is tireless or endless and um in that like little wins don't feel like anything. I don't know. It feels like some of this is unattainable, I guess. Um, or winning is unattainable. But I also think um, through this pandemic and, like, the uprisings in regards to, like, Black Lives Matter, we're also seeing some amazing wins that, like, six months ago would never have thought would have been possible, like, within the next even 10 years. And that's, like, even talking about, like, defunding police and 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 abolishing the police and what that looks like um obviously like that hasn't been spread totally and like we haven't accomplished that but we also have seen some really impressive and 
and um, inspiring wins. And so I was curious, like, along with that common narrative, like, that direct actions or petitions or campaigns or movement work, like, don't amount to change. Like, um, how can we counter that narrative? Yeah, so with all of that being said, could you expand a bit more on some of the wins and um, moments of, like, inspiration you've had with within this movement space and in how this journey will look in regards to these wins? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, in terms of the, the um, decent work movement, um, I think one of the, the biggest uh, wins, I think, and well, this was in, in the last few years um, to, to start with, has been um, around Bill 148. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, although a lot of the wins from this bill were taken away, um, so again, like the, um, the increase to the minimum wage, uh, paid sick days, um, flexible emergency leave days, um, so although a lot of these were taken away, um, they weren't all taken away. <laughs> um, mm. And we did have them, uh, most of them enacted for about a year or two. Um, and uh, in addition to that, um, and, and related also is uh, that the Canadian government, in light of COVID-19, has recently promised 10 paid sick days for workers, um, which is so important and huge. But we have to keep up the pressure to ensure that this is actually delivered upon. Um, Also, uh, in light of COVID-19, workers in Ontario now have access to unpaid job protected leave. um, And also doctor's notes can no longer be required by employers to take this leave. Um, And another huge win, um, which has been incredibly exciting in the labor movement is uh by foodsters united Mm. which is the collective of toronto's fedora couriers who uh, organized to join a union and who successfully fought the fedora company and won so that they now have the legal right to organize and certify a union um but of course (laughs) As many of us now know, um, following this, the Fedora Company, in um, a likely act of uh, union busting, removed its company from Canada. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, but also that yeah does not erase the the wins leading up to this. And also following this, it was discovered that uh, Foodsters United had successfully organized the Fedora couriers who uh, did end up voting in favor of organizing a union. So despite their company abandoning them, uh, Foodsters United have historically formed the first union of app-based gig workers in the country, which is a huge win. Um, And we're also seeing examples of successful organizing led by migrant workers across Canada. So, for example, um, farm workers in Niagara um, marching out on their bosses while in quarantine, um, meat processors in Alberta refusing to work in unsafe conditions, and also migrant sex workers who continue to stand up uh, to police harassment. Um, we're also seeing really inspiring organizing happening among grocery store workers as well. Um, so as my friend and comrade, Rashev Brown, um, who is a community organizer and grocery store worker, has said, um, as we continue to live in the era of COVID-19, the more we see the need for workers to organize ourselves to stop our exploitation and shift the narratives to people and workers over profit to save our own lives. And, you know, all of these examples are hard-fought wins on behalf of workers and organizers. And the government always tends to claim that they have generously given these to us, but it's important to always remember that they didn't. This was the result of years of strategic, creative, and deep organizing and talking to folks on the street and door knocking and petition signatures and talking to our fellow workers and um, all part of building an undeniable and irresistible movement. Mm. 
Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think um, especially the last part that you shared about the way in which the government pretends that they've been giving these, or like giving us these wins graciously and because they're so good to us. Um, But like in reality and in the truth, we know that like there's been so much organizing and movement work behind all of these wins. And I think that really highlights the importance of just yeah, taking a step back and remember we can lean on that intergenerational wisdom and and especially in movement work. Again, being that both of us are younger folks in movement spaces, sometimes we we feel like the onus is on us to be like that change and like to do that work. But that that really just reminded me that yeah, there's this has been going on for some time and like we have so much wisdom in these spaces to rely on and and yeah, community is so important. Um, and so as I was preparing for this convo today, I was just re- reflecting more upon the, the current cultural moment in which it feels like young people are getting really involved in organizing work, which is awesome and so inspiring to see. And and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your own journey in this movement work and how you kind of got, got started. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so I think... Yeah, we're reflecting back on this, I think even just a few years ago, I didn't really know of the concept of movement work or organizing or mm. like really what that meant. Yeah, same. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think I'm still figuring it out. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll you be do. ongoing. But yes. um, I, yeah, for, for a long time, I've of course known the concept of social justice and always knew I wanted to be involved um, in that um, because I kind of feel like, you know, what else is the point? Mm. Um, (laughs) Totally. It's so true. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, like I've come to understand that it like, yeah, it just feels like it doesn't make sense to exist in this period of human history like just totally inundated with capitalism and white supremacy and like not use whatever I have in the struggle against these things. Um, But I think I really understood the importance of organizing and movements specifically when I began studying in the field of public health. Um, And I think kind of, yeah, what, what maybe I elaborated to a little bit earlier, but people tend to publish, tend to conceptualize public health in terms of like kind of a a defined box of like sanitation and containing disease spread and vaccinations. And it is definitely these things, um, which is probably um, especially obvious right now, but connected to this and also beyond these things, it's also about understanding um, what makes some people healthy and others not as healthy or sick. And these roots, as we had spoken to earlier, um, are entirely political um, and health and public health are therefore deeply political. And we change this political sphere as I've become um, increasingly aware through movement uh, work and organizing. And I can actually trace my entry into organizing around decent work specifically Mm. to a class I took during my education where we focused specifically on the connection between work and health and how employment laws directly impact health Mm. and the importance of health workers not being apolitical, um, which they so often are Mm. (laughs) um, because health is like constantly depoliticized. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this class, we spoke in depth also about the Fight for 15 and Fairness movement and the Decent Work and Health Network, which I am just so grateful for because it's like, <laughs> I feel like changed the entire trajectory of my, of my, my yeah, profession and my, um, my life really. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think right after that specific class, I went home and I emailed the coordinator of the Decent Work and Health Network and the That's rest so is sweet. history. I love that. <laughs> That's so like that. I could totally see that. Like I could see you going home. Be like, I gotta get in. I gotta help. <laughs> it's so sweet. No, that's 
No, that's so awesome. I think, yeah, just like what a great origin to like that space, you know? Like, I think that's so organic. What do you think comes next for you in this work? Like, are you like sitting with anything right now? Yeah, for sure. So specifically in terms of the Decent Work and Health Network, and I think what has collectively been sitting with the um, the the labor movement, mm-hmm. specifically in Ontario, has been um, Bill 148 coming in and then being taken away and the impacts that that's had on Ontario workers. And um, also like the very specific um, situation and environment that it's put Ontario workers into. Um, mm. And for the past year, because of this, uh, the Decent Work and Health Network has been really focusing on research, specifically documenting the impact of this change in labor laws through collecting workers' stories. And um, through the last few years, um, yeah, as mentioned, Ontario workers have experienced rapid changes in these labor policies. Um, again, the minimum wage increased to $14 an hour. Um, then we gained also two paid sick days and then they were taken away. Um, and then employers could no longer ask for sick notes. And then they could again. And then they couldn't again. Mm. <laughs> and workers had 10 days of job protected emergency leave that was flexible and now um, they're prescriptive. So through collecting these worker stories, um, we're really hoping that we can um, put them together and equip ourselves with knowledge and fight back and really hold the government accountable and say to the forward government, you know, listen, these changes in labor law that you've made have had real impacts on Ontario workers. And here is exactly how from the voice of Ontario workers. And this report um, will uh, likely be released sometime this summer. So everyone, yeah, please keep an eye out for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, also, I think really what we've also been focusing on um, and what my own work and, and considerations have been focusing on, um, I think because of the more explicit connection is around uh, paid sick days here in Ontario. Um, so since the federal government has now promised paid sick days, mm. um, the Decent Work and Health Network will be providing a set of guiding principles from the perspective of health workers for how these paid sick days should be implemented. Um, So we believe that these uh, need to be universal for all workers, despite status. Um, There must be seamless access without putting additional burden on workers to get these. Um, They must be permanent and adequate. So um, at the very minimum, seven of them with an additional 14 during public outbreaks. Um, and you know, it, it has to be understood too, that this is feasible and essential Mm. and supported by public health and even economic research. Mm, Totally. No, that's really, I didn't even, I didn't know about that, that report. So that's really exciting to like hear. No, like definitely keep a lookout for it. And whenever it comes up, we'll add it to the show notes as well. Cause that's so that's so incredible, you know, and um, yeah, I'm super grateful for for everything that you've been doing and your entire network has been doing. Yeah, would would be curious if there's anything right now that's like really giving you energy and, and keeping you motivated. Yeah, for sure. Um, I really, yeah, I love that question too, because it's, <laughs> it's also like nice and just exciting to reflect upon too. Mm-hmm. Um But yeah, I think really one of the main things um, that's giving me energy is seeing the work of my fellow organizers uh, from the Decent Work and Health Network and 15 in Fairness and Climate Justice Toronto to like yourself, um, (laughs) as as well as also those in connected organizations like the Migrant Rights Network and Foodsters United. Um, It's also um, really energizing um, and motivating too to see the incredible and inspiring work from uh, people and organizations who I'm not personally connected with and just like realizing that 
this important work is like it's happening everywhere Mm. um and specifically like just to give an example that's really stood out to me um this past year what is um from people like Kali Akuno and Cooperation yes. Jackson. Yes. yes. Uh, I love Kali. I quote him all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> Every opportunity, I'm like, have you heard of Kali Akuno? Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Sorry. Anyways, yeah. Yeah, he's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and so, yeah, their work around eco-socialism and Black self-determination, like, mm-hmm. is amazing. And so, yeah, I remember attending um, Kuno's talk, I think it was back in February, yeah. and it was just, like, just the most inspiring and, like, wow, like, this work towards eco-socialism is mm-hmm. actually happening right now and in these very specific, tangible ways. Um, and I remember also at that talk seeing a dear friend there who I hadn't seen in years and didn't know was also doing movement work. And so that talk too was just like this critical moment for me both seeing the work being done and also realizing that it's drawing so many people into it too. Totally. No, I was, I was also luckily at that, that talk and it was just so, yeah, I think that was like, I think everyone who was there left feeling so inspired and like it, this, this idea of eco-socialism and the way in which we can avoid it being greenwashed and how we can like really just combat all of these all these ways in which these systems kind of just like seep their way into all of our movements um yeah it was just so inspiring and I think you're totally right the common cause of burnout in movement spaces also is just this feeling that like the burden falls on your shoulders and your shoulders alone which definitely gets to me as well and it feels really heavy and then I think yeah similarly I just look out and I see people like you and and so many of our like friends and comrades just doing this work that I don't really have much of a a foot in and just remembering this is so much bigger than me and even my community and network and like people are doing this inspires me because it's also interconnected so yeah thank you for sharing that but yeah I was curious if there was anything that you're sitting with like on your bookshelf or any podcasts or or any initiatives that you'd want to amplify right now just to share to our listeners yeah yeah for sure um so in terms of like things that I'm currently consuming Mm. um I yeah I found that the most reading and learning I'm doing right now reflecting upon it seems to be through Instagram mm, and Instagram me too. posts. Yeah. That's right? so true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> like, and yeah. And social mm. media, I think for me and for so many others is like such this critically important method of education. And I've learned so much from Instagram posts mm. um, created by educators and organizers. Um, like, yeah, just to give a shout out to like some of my favorites that totally. like I seem to learn. Um, yeah, Frontline Medics, Decolonize This Place, Sonia Renee Taylor, uh, anyone, yeah, listeners want to, like, check those out if you haven't yet, Mm. um, also Climate Justice Toronto's Instagram, I know it's (laughs) some pretty, also, this book is, like, sitting meters away from me right now on my bedside table, um, (laughs) it's called The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, um, it's yeah it's a utopian anarchist science fiction novel yes I feel like it's just like it's so popular in organizing spaces <laughs> so like yeah I bought it from BMV like a, like half a year ago for like seven dollars mm. and was so excited but it's just it's just been sitting on my bedside table and I consider reading it every night before I go to bed but just <laughs> consider (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like on Instagram no fair same don't worry I've like half started like so many books it's upsetting (laughs) don't worry Mm -hmm. um and yeah and in terms of like specific initiatives to keep it on the same general topic I'd love to give a shout out to organizing work happening around decent work in so-called Canada so um and yeah from from this work it's 
I like I've learned so much over the past few years and has also informed the majority of what I spoke to today too. Mm. So um, like, of course, as I mentioned multiple times, the Migrant Rights Network, um, the Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign, um, also Butterfly, which is the Asian and Migrant Sex Workers Support Network, um, Maggie's Toronto Sex Workers Action Project, um, the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, Foodsters United, Justice for Janitors and Justice for Migrant Workers. Um, and also, of course, to give a shout out to the Decent Work and Health Network. Um, and <laughs> if you want to get involved, uh, you can do so. Um, anyone's welcome to get involved, um, even yeah, if you're a health worker or not. Um, and you can also sign on to our demands to at decentworkandhealth.org. Um, we also have a Facebook, Twitter, and relatively newly an Instagram too Ooh. with some posts that you could also read before bedtime. Just holding so much gratitude for for you to A, come on this, this podcast, but also just like that I am able to know you as, as a friend and as a comrade. Thank you so much again for sharing all of that wisdom with us. And I know I learned so much through this. And so I'm hoping folks who are listening in will also hold a lot. So yeah, thank you, Robin. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. And yeah, thank you so much for, for, giving, for giving me the space to talk about decent work and health. Thank you to Robin for illuminating some really important topics. For more information about Robin's work, visit the episode page on the CKX Questions website. CKX Questions is a podcast from CKX, Community Knowledge Exchange. The intro and outro music for CKX Questions is the song Good Vibes from Broken Parts' self-titled album. Be sure to check out this link in the show notes to support their amazing work. Until next time, take care and let's take care of each other.